Hello, and thank you for joining the second season of Title Nerds, presented by the law firm of Riker Danzig. Each episode features one or more of Riker Danzig's thought leaders in the title insurance law space, discussing current legal trends and issues of significance. Please remember that nothing shared on today's podcast should be considered legal advice in any particular matter. Now let's welcome Michael O'Donnell, Riker Danzig's co-managing partner, and partner Bethany Abley to kick off our podcast. Hello, everyone out there. This is the second episode of season two of Title Nerds, and we hope everyone had a good holiday and is ready for Title Nerds to resume back on track on a more regular basis. I am Mike O'Donnell, and my co-host is Bethany Abley, and we're very pleased to have with us today the General Counsel of the American Land Title Association and one of our newest members of our Title Nerds team, Jim Mazuski, who will talk about the case in the podcast. Bethany, did you have anything? I just wanted to say welcome, everyone, to our first podcast of 2023. Hope everyone enjoyed the holidays and is having a very good start to the new year. And welcome, Steve. We're glad to have you. Thank you for having me. Steve, you run the American Land Title Association Title Council meetings, which I've been going to for years, and they're great. And I think most people that listen to this podcast, because it is absolutely scintillating, know about the American Land Title Association, but uh, we shouldn't assume. So can you just tell us what exactly is the American Land Title Association and what does it do? Yeah, so if there are any actual title nerds listening and they don't know ALK, then we are doing a very poor job of (laughs) keeping people in this industry up to date. The American Land Title Association is the National Trade Association. We're based here in D.C. for the title insurance and settlement services industry. We represent the whole gamut of people involved in title transactions and real estate transactions from title insurers to title agents or attorneys in the states that the business is mostly run through attorney agents to escrow officers and escrow professionals and all of the support services that support those businesses. Altogether, we've got about 6,500 member companies located across the country. We represent industry of about 20,000 companies across the country doing the in the weeds business of making sure that when people buy a home, they'll actually own the home and that if something goes wrong, somebody like Mike and Bethany are able to get them out of the jam. Thanks. Bethany, you want to take the next one? Go ahead. I was just going to ask if you've ever considered changing the name to the Association of Title Nerds. (laughs) (laughs) And Steve, you know, we say that proudly. We proudly call ourselves Title Nerds. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Interestingly, right before recording this podcast, we were doing a orientation for our newest member of our ALPA board, Scott Chandler from Westport Land Title Association. And as part of that, I was going through and doing a presentation of the history of the association. And the actual original name of the association was the American Association of Title Men back in 1907. Wow. So, you know, very progressive in its day. And the thing that most struck us as we were talking about the history of the association, the fact that it was the Title Men Association. It's the fact that 70% of the employees in this industry are women. So it really it always should be the Association of Title Women, if anything, if we're going to use any gender in the name of the association. Oh, that's interesting. I, I wasn't aware of that. And Steve, what are the current issues of concern to all the sort of the hot button issues that are percolating right now? Yeah. So as a national trade association, advocacy is a, a very important part of what we do as an association. It's part of the reason that we're based in Washington, D.C. It's interface with public policymakers and Congress in the executive branch as well. 
it's not the only thing we do. We do a lot of communication and other type of, of information. And I would say, you know, globally from the industry perspective, obviously the big thing in, on everybody's mind is the fact that we are, at least in the housing world, that hit a likely a housing recession right now. And so we're seeing, you know, a number of companies looking at how are they going to manage it in the next year, especially as volume has dropped off from historic highs of the 2021 year. On a public policy front, there's a lot of areas where we are really focused on in our advocacy front and foremost is an effort that is kind of being driven a little bit because of push for increased access to affordable housing and the work being done at Fannie and May and Freddie Mac to try to support ways to lower costs for marginal home buyers to get them into housing. And that's led them to explore alternatives to title insurance in the forms of kind of these quasi attorney opinion letters that are really just kind of people trying to offer title insurance while not being licensed as title insurance. And that is a major issue that we are working with policymakers to help them understand and also understand why we think that's a bad idea. Along with that, we are constantly focused on all things related to real estate wire fraud. It is a major source of claims that get paid out of this industry that the attempts to steal consumers' money or more often than not, as we see today, the attempt of criminals to get in between title companies sending their payoffs for a loan that is being paid off at a closing. So that is a major focus of our advocacy. And then we do a lot right now, and I especially do a lot with the folks at FinCEN, and the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, because of just the growing role the industry is playing when it comes to money laundering and understanding the ways that real estate can be an attractive asset class for people looking to hide illicit or otherwise hide assets away from prying eyes, whether they're foreign national or the like. You sort of anticipated my next question, Steve, and that's what advice or what assistance does Alta give to real estate professionals to avoid the scams, the frauds, and the pitfalls out there? I, I know you have a slew of Alta best practices, but can you sort of go into a little more depth about that? Yeah, we have a host of resources available, especially on the topic of real estate wire fraud, which is the, the really the biggest scam that we see coming at our industry constantly. And it's been a constant struggle around that topic for the last you know, five, six, seven years. We have a, a number of products that our committees at, at the association have pulled together a outgoing wire checklist, a number of like, sample procedures for how to handle you know, what to do in a rapid response situation when you become the victim of one of these crimes, different ways to help, different types of controls that people can put in place. Probably the most important thing that we've got in helping the industry around those types of crimes is a host of marketing and other types of consumer education material. There are two flavors of wire fraud out there, right? There's the, the consumer angle where somebody's trying to get it between the consumer and they're usually dummying up as if they are the title company asking you to send your earnest money or another part of your deposit funds to a money mule before eventually getting it out of the country. And then there's obviously what I, I already talked about, that kind of attempts to get in between the payoffs. And while payoff attempts have been increasing in the, in the past year, they are, in some ways, a lot more in the control of our industry to try to fight against. But the consumer side of it is really a challenge. You know, most home buyers do not buy homes very often, and so for the most part, your average home buyer is probably the only time they go to their bank to wire funds is when they're buying a home. They probably never ever spend a wire any other reason. And so, trying to help them understand what are the good hygiene and good practices to do that has become really a important part of this. And so we, we do a lot to educate both consumers, help our member companies educate consumers, but also educating real estate agents as well about those risks, because this is a constantly growing crime. It seems like every year when we get the latest statistic from the FBI, 
the amount of money lost to wire fraud is, is either staying the same or growing. And that's with this being, you know, front and center for everybody in our industry every day. So, you know, we've got to continually double down on how do we help make sure that buying real estate continues to be a very safe investment and also that the process for buying and closing a transaction is very safe for consumers. You know, one scam that Bethany and I are seeing a lot, and I'd like to get your thoughts on it, is in the inner cities, we're seeing a fair amount of, particularly with the gentrification of, of some of the inner cities, of fraudsters essentially dummying up estate records and yeah. selling property right and left. Has Altus seen that or addressed that in any way? We've seen a little bit of this. We call it, you know, in many ways, we just call it deed fraud. And it's the most generalistic term. That's, you know, one way that it gets talked about in policymaker circles. Recently, we've started working with Representative Emanuel Cleaver's office. Mr. Cleaver is the member of Congress for the Kansas City area. And he's also the chairman of the subcommittee around housing issues in the House Financial Services Committee. And he is very passionate about this issue because, you know, when it does pop up, it's not a, it's not one of the things that we see nationally as a big trend, but we do see it as happening in, as you said, kind of pockets of inner cities and typically does target, unfortunately, African American homeowners, especially elderly homeowners who are looking to pass down generational wealth. And so it is a tragic scenario. And so we've been working with him on some efforts to improve awareness and some potentially some federal funding to help combat the crime and better educate prosecutors to help uncover this type of crime. The other part of that equation that we've had dealt with is uh, on, on the flip side, there are also companies out there marketing very heavily in certain media circles the need for title monitoring services, similar to LifeLock, but with no help on the back end. Just, hey, we'll tell you if somebody's recorded something against your property. And they're really drumming up and scaring a lot of consumers, but also trying to convince them to buy something that's really not going to be the type of thing that can help them if and when they become a victim of one of these crimes. And so, you know, we are doing our, our best also to try to educate the consumers that are concerned about these types of things being victims of crimes about the best way to protect themselves, which we think is to have bought a enhanced or homeowner's policy of title insurance as an owner's policy because then you get the benefit of the title company having to step in, pay your cost of defense, pay somebody like Mike and Bethany to help solve this problem for you as opposed to being on your own about it, which is what those title monitoring services really do. But it makes you have to deal with it on your own. And that enhanced policy, as I understand it, Steve, would be one that would provide protection for a deed forgery that happened after the title policy was issued, which is usually not the case of title insurance. Title insurance is usually backward looking, right? Right. A standard owner and loan policy just is a backward looking policy and it ensures, you know, stats of title up until the date of the policy, typically the date of closing or recording. Our homeowners policy has a number of coverages that provide what we call post-policy coverage. So even if the incident occurs after you closed on your home, you might still have coverage. One of those is for fraud and forgery issues. And it's just and for these exact same reasons why that coverage is there and why we think it's the appropriate type of product for most home buyers to buy anyways. But more importantly, as these types of fraud issues become more front and center, become a larger source of claims paid in the industry, a larger source of the defense cost that the industry spends, we think it's obviously even more important for them to get the most robust fraud coverage that they can get when it comes to owning their home. Yeah. Thanks for bringing it up because I remember when I first saw that policy, my instant thought was why any residential attorney would not order this. I, I didn't know because it really provides so much more coverage. Yeah. And in some states, it, it's just companies maybe hadn't filed it in the past. So we're talking to our member companies about maybe 
need to think about differently from a business perspective and get those filed. But, you know, in others, it's just, you know, common practice. I always had my buyer buy a regular owner's policy and it's just trying to educate both real estate agents in the market where real estate agents have a lot more sway in that, but also in the markets like where you are in New Jersey, New York, and the Northeast where, you know, the attorneys have a little bit more of a sway because there's that attorney-client relationship at the closing table. Now, you've given us some great information about what Alta does, but I know you guys do a lot of conventions, seminars, webinars. How does someone who might be interested in finding out about those seminars, webinars, or Alta itself, how do they go about doing that? And and how do they go about it if they're even interested in joining Alta? Can you tell our listeners? I think part of the question also should be, not to correct your question, Mike, but who? Who should be joining the American Land Title Association? So I guess who and how? Yeah, so we've got, you know, anybody that's kind of, you know, interested or touching the type of title assurance transaction or a real estate transaction is eligible to be a member of ours. And we encourage everyone to, to do that, right? We have that kind of two core classes of members, those those who are actually insurers and those who are serving as title agents or closing attorneys, title attorneys. You know, the simplest way for, for those of your members that are attorneys, which I'm, I'm going to guess are probably a significant portion of your audience are in the legal field, it would be my guess. We have a pretty simple membership for you know real estate attorneys out there. There's $350. It's an annual membership fee, and it gets you access not just to all of the events that, like noted, we do put on a large number of conferences and offer a lot of continuing uh, legal education and other types of credits too as part of the education at those conferences. But you also get our print news magazine, but also our bi-weekly e-news and a couple of other e-news products that we get as well as you know, obviously the work of our advocacy professionals in DC and the work of our professionals as well, like do research and other types of issues like that. And so, you know, there's a lot of bang for your buck, especially when you think of $350 to protect your industry and protect your, really protect your livelihood, especially in a declining market like this. It could be, you know, more important than ever to stay abreast of what's actually happening, where the market trends are going, what deals might look like in the future and how you might get into those transactions. As I said, for, for real estate attorneys, we do have a $350 special membership. If you've got any law student listeners as well, we have a special law student uh, membership as well, which I believe is $150 or $125. Quite remember the number off the top of my head. But the easiest way to join us, just go to our website. It's join.alta.org, and you can find out all you need to know about membership, all you need to know about what it costs and that. The other thing I could recommend and highly recommend is we have a great member services team of people that will really walk you through not just how to join the association as a member, but also how to get the most bang for your buck and you know how to really get plugged into our committees, how to get plugged into our conventions and our conferences. And I would encourage you know anybody to reach out to a member of our membership team led by Taylor Spolidoro. And her email address is easy to figure out. It's just Taylor, T-A-Y-L-O-R, at klta.org. And I, I encourage you to email her and, and she will help take care of you and really help you know, make you feel like you found a home and a family here at ALPA. Sounds great. Thank you. And I can personally attest for that great membership team because 32 years ago, I met a girl from South Carolina who worked for the American Land Title Association (laughs) and didn't have enough judgment not to marry me. And she's still my wife. So I'm very (laughs) grateful to American Land Title for that addition to my life. And with that, Steve, thanks. It was great having you on. And now we're going to turn to Jim Mazuski, and he's going to talk about the case of the podcast with Bethany. And we thank all of you for being on. And Bethany, turning it over to you. All right. Thanks, Mike. Welcome, Jim. 
I believe this is your first podcast appearance. So we are very glad to have you. Everybody, Jim Mazuski is a new member of our team here, and we are glad to have him on our mod squad, as we call our team. So thank you, Jim, for being here today. And uh, thanks for having me. We're looking forward to getting into this case with you. So can you tell us what's the case we'll be talking about today? Sure. It's Finley versus Chicago Title Insurance Company. It's a first district court of appeals case out of Illinois, and it is on our blog as well. All right. And a shout out to the Riker Danzig Title Insurance Team's blog. So if you have a chance, please go to our website and check out our blog. So Jim, what is this case about? So it's obviously a title dispute. It deals with a small vacation subdivision on the shore of Lake Michigan that dates back to 1959. And there's 10 residential lots in the subdivision, and it's on a private beach abutting the lake. Lots one through seven have designated private beach access annexed directly to their property. And then lots eight, nine, and 10 do not have that private beach access. So originally, all the lots had access to a beach easement that was on the edge of lot five. And lots eight, nine, and 10 would use that to access the beach since they didn't have private access. And then in the 1990s, the homeowners association that ran the property, they built a gate that when closed would only allow the lot eight, nine, and 10 owners to access that beach easement by cutting across lot five. And then the plaintiff in this case, it's a husband and wife, the Finleys. They came into this case in 2007 when they bought lot five. And then upon buying it, they started objecting to the lot eight, nine, and 10 owners cutting across their property to get to the beach easement. And then in 2009, the Finleys submitted a claim to Chicago Title Insurance. They wanted to settle whether there was an egress easement on lot five. And the lot eight owners also submitted a claim to Chicago Title. They both had the same insurer, which was the defendant, Chicago Title, on the same issue. So Chicago Title accepted the claims. They tried to see if they could settle it, didn't go anywhere. And then in 2010, the lot eight owners filed a declaratory judgment action uh, against the plaintiff to settle the issue of the easement. And, you know, they both plaintiff tendered defense to Chicago Title. They accepted, but they only accepted defense on two of the counts which for counts two and three, plaintiff disputed that, saying there was a conflict of interest because the Chicago title was paying for the attorneys on both sides of the dispute. The Chicago title didn't accept that. It said it was fulfilling its obligations to both sides. And ultimately, that trial court action, the court found that the lot eight owners were entitled to use the beach easement, but there was no implied easement to cut through the yard. So that's kind of the convoluted background. And a little more <laughs> relevant to our issue after that, that let's interrupt you for a minute, Jim. Sorry. Yeah. So, as to how the title insurance company is getting involved here, I wanted to note a couple of things in what you just said. So, on one issue, you said Chicago Title was tendering defense for two of the claims, and I believe there were a total of four counts against the Finleys, who are Chicago Title's insurers. Is that correct? That's correct. There are four total. Okay, so Chicago Title was giving them a defense for two out of the four. Yes. And the other thing that I wanted to touch base on was the idea of the conflict of interest that was raised by the Finleys. So Jim, in this situation, what we have here is various parties to the same litigation, defendants and plaintiffs who had title insurance with the same insurance company, Chicago Title Insurance Company. Yep, that's and correct. My understanding is Chicago Title Insurance Company retained separate attorneys to represent, on one hand, the plaintiffs in our matter, the Finleys, and also the parties that have been suing the Finleys, the other lot owners. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. And that's where the Finleys were saying there's a conflict of interest because Chicago Title, you retained our attorney. You also retained the attorney for the people who are suing us. 
Right. Paying right. for both sides. All right. <laughs> so I didn't mean to interrupt you. I know you were giving us a lot of information there and there's a lot going on in this case. Yeah, there's a lot of background. Yeah. And I think some of the fun points about the case, if you could call it fun, you see things like on the easement, there was an accusation that the Finleys were letting their dogs loose and they were unleashed dogs on the easement to intimidate the other people from crossing and stuff like that. And I will say with my years of practice, one of the things that I often see is when you have disputes about property like this, boundary line disputes or trespassing or claims of this nature, a lot of times you will see this is something that becomes very personal to the property owners and they get very emotional about it. And it's not uncommon to see allegations like that. I'll just, <laughs> I'll put it that way. <laughs> so. All right, Jim. So what happened with the actual litigation against the title insurance company, the case that we're talking about today, the Finley versus Chicago Title Insurance Company? So what after that, there? yeah, so after that whole background, then the Finleys sued Chicago Title directly. They asserted a bunch of different breach of contract claims that ultimately went nowhere. They lost in resounding fashion in their suit against Chicago title at the trial level. And then this decision is all about the appeal. They lost all their claims. They appealed. And then the appeals court really dealt with three claims of substance. The first was the conflict of interest claim, saying that paying for both the attorneys on both sides generated a conflict of interest. And the appellate court said that that's absolutely not the case. They said that not every conflict of interest automatically triggers a right to independent counsel and that for the payment of both sides to actually create a conflict of interest, there had to be an actual conflict. There had to be facts showing that the insurance company had directed one counsel on one side to take some type of specific action or some kind of adverse action. That was not the case. The Finleys never demonstrated any facts even that would touch upon that. One and, thing that I found interesting there was the courts, the Finleys were saying, well, hey, you Chicago title, you wanted the other side to win. And the court said, and this is a quote from the court, it says, this argument ignores the fact that Chicago Title Insurance Company would also benefit if it could avoid having to indemnify Finley's claims as well. In other words, no matter which party prevailed, the possibility existed that Chicago Title Insurance Company might be required to indemnify the opposing party. Right. Therefore, Chicago Title Insurance Company had no incentive to favor one insured over the other. Right. And- you know, I thought that was a good way of putting it when the Finleys were saying, hey, you wanted the other side to win. And the court said, well, no, they were just as interested in seeing you win. Right. And then the, the real substance of this and why it's interesting, why it's on our blog is the complete defense rule that Illinois has. And, and a lot of other sister jurisdictions have that. But the, Illinois' complete defense rule, basically, it imposes an obligation on an insurer. If they're going to defend even one claim, they have to defend all of the claims, provide a complete defense. The basis is that it's usually not feasible to differentiate between the work being done on one claim versus all the other non-covered claims. And the court believes that it's easier to just view the insured as a whole and you just provide a whole defense to the insured. But interestingly, they say that in, in recent years, they, they cite to Wisconsin, Colorado, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, a lot of outside jurisdictions. And they say in recent years, all these courts have created an, an exception to this type of rule for title insurance claims and title insurance as a whole basically on the unique characteristics of title insurance because it protects looking backwards against prior defects and also because it's much more, you can easily bifurcate out title insurance claims from other claims. So they adopted the reasoning of those other courts 
and found that the complete defense rule never will apply in the context of title insurance. And this is kind of an evolving trend. You're seeing a lot of different courts starting to adopt this approach where they have a complete defense rule or a similar type of rule under a different name. Yeah, and I thought it was interesting how they did talk about the fact that title insurance is different than general liability insurance. And that's why they're saying, you know, we're not going to go with that rule in this case. And I believe that the Finlays actually in the litigation didn't use the phrase complete defense rule. And the court said, you might not have used that phrase, but that's what you're talking about here. <laughs> so we're yeah, going to go into this analysis <laughs> of the complete defense rule. And it looked like, you know, the, the court wanted to take on this analysis. At least that's what it seemed to me that they were saying, you know what, let's do this analysis. And as you said, Jim, they did come to the conclusion that here, the complete defense rule is not going to apply in the context of title insurance. Yeah, it looked like they went out of their way to deal with this and to issue an opinion on this. Is there anything else, Jim, about this case that you found noteworthy? Just they had one other issue that they settled based on condition 5A of the policy. It granted Chicago title the right to select counsel of its choice to represent the insured unless the insured showed that there was a reasonable cause not for selecting that counsel. And they upheld that. A lot lot of title policies have that same language or similar language. So it's just another good use of this case if you want to bolster any type of claim regarding, you know, the enforceability of that condition or similar language. And I thought it was interesting that the Finlays, when they were instituting this lawsuit against Chicago Title, said, well, the lawyer that you, Chicago Title, gave us was not competent because in court, she was fidgeting and she tugged at her skirt and gave the judge one word answers. And I chuckled at that myself because I think you'd be hard pressed to find an attorney out there who has gone to court and not fidgeted at one time or another. And I know I personally, I've tugged at my skirt before or, you know, tugged at my jacket or whatnot. And I just thought it was interesting that that was their alleged cause as to why they should get a different attorney. And the court did find, you know, that's not a reasonable cause for you to have a conflict here that you should be getting independent counsel as opposed to the right. counsel from Chicago title. Bethany, I'll plead guilty to fidgeting and even <laughs> tugging at my pants, not skirt. <laughs> and, I, and I did like that the court said, you know, that doesn't mean that the attorney has failed to meet the requisite standard of care just because the attorney fidgeted or tugged at her skirt. So I thought that was an interesting part of this case as well. So those are all the main points. I think that's all the important things. All right. Sounds good. Thank you so much, Jim. We appreciate you being on today. Again, welcome to the firm. Welcome to our team. And thank you everyone for listening and happy new year. Thank you. Thank you for listening today to Title Nerds presented by Riker Danzig. If you like this show, please remember to subscribe to this podcast on your preferred podcast app and be sure to rate us five stars. You may also wish to subscribe to our blog and visit our website at Riker.com. We hope you will join us again for another episode of Title Nerds.